Hi, welcome to the Freehoff Institute of Progressive Halakha. I'm Rabbi Mark Wachowski with the 12-minute shiur number 39, When Halakha and Ethics Collide, Part 2. We'll be working from a source sheet that's available at our website, www.freehoffinstitute.org learning, and then scroll down to the 12-minute shiur. In our last installment, we inquired as to how the rabbis react when one of the rules of halakha seems to clash with the principles of ethics, of justice and fairness. And we saw that one of the ways the rabbis tried to solve that problem was to tell stories, to construct a narrative to explain that, all appearances to the contrary, the halakhic rule in question in fact does not run afoul of justice. Our case in point was a Mishnah in Bhavakama chapter 4 that deals with claims of damages when one ox attacks another. If the owner of one ox is a Jew and the owner of the other ox is a non-Jew, the Jewish owner never pays damages, even if his ox was the attacker, while the non-Jewish owner always pays damages, full damages. It's a clear case of discrimination. The Talmud acknowledges that fact, but it justifies the rule by telling a story. Namely, that the nations of the world failed to live up to their commitment in the covenant that God made with Noah after the great Mabul, the flood, in which they agreed to establish courts of justice in their communities. By acting unjustly, therefore, they forfeited any right to equal justice in our own Jewish courts. In another version of this story, before giving the Torah to Israel, God shopped it around to all the other nations who rejected it. It's a radical retelling of the biblical narrative in which Israel is the only nation to ever have a chance at receiving Torah, and it serves again to justify what on the surface appears to be an unjust law, one that discriminates against non-Jews. Now, the problem with this sort of justification is that not everyone will find the story persuasive, not by a long shot. Take a look at the source sheet, lines 3 through 19. It's a story in Bavli Bavakama about two Salyotot, Roman government officials who come to the rabbis, not because they want to convert to Judaism, but simply because they want to study Torah, maybe to find out its weaknesses so that they can punish the Jews for them. Who knows? It turns out, anyway, that they're quite impressed with everything they learn, except for that discriminatory law in Mishnah Bavakama, chapter 4. They raise the same objection to that law that the Talmud does in precisely the same technical language the Talmud uses. It seems they've done quite well in their yeshiva studies. But in the end, they promise not to inform their superiors about this one problem. You know, it's a great story. It shows how the rabbis were able to see themselves and the Torah through the eyes of the other, to recognize how that other would sense the injustice embedded in this particular halakha. And note that this story omits the narrative of how the Gentile nations failed to uphold the Noahide covenant or that they rejected the offer of the Torah itself. Clearly, the rabbinic narrators of this story understood that while Jews might buy the premise of those stories, non-Jews certainly would not. Uh, all this goes to show that sometimes when you perceive a conflict between halakha and ethics or justice, you can't narrate your way out of the difficulty. Stories work to the extent that their intended audience is receptive to them, and it isn't. So 
Sometimes, then, the best way to respond to the conflict is to change the law so that it conforms to the demands of ethics. And this is what the rabbis do in the parallel version of this account that we find in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Bava Kama, beginning on line 24. Once again, the Roman government sends officials to learn the Torah. Once again, they come away impressed, mostly. In this version uh, of the story, the Gentile scholars have two or maybe three problems with the Torah. The, the text is poorly edited. Let's focus on the second problem, line 28. We don't like that your Torah says, Gzelo shel Yisrael asur v'shel akumutar. Or line 39, stolen property belonging to a Jew is forbidden for use, but stolen property belonging to a Gentile is prohibited, is permitted for use. Again, discrimination. There's simply no ethical justification for this rule. Here, the rabbis don't try to come up with a story to justify the law. Rather, line 29, at line 41, at that moment, Rabban Gamliel decreed, Gazar, that stolen property belonging to a Gentile is forbidden because it is a profanation of the divine name, Bipnei Chilul Hashem. That is, Rabban Gamliel effectively annuls a law of the Torah, renders it inoperative on the grounds that the law as it normally operates appears to be unethical, unjust, that it brings God's name and the Torah into disrepute, which itself is a violation of the commandment in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 32, kodshi, do not profane my holy name. In this case, the clash between halacha and ethics is resolved decisively against halacha and in favor of ethics. We're talking here about the power of the rabbis to legislate, to enact laws of their own called takanot or gezerot that add to, modify, or even change the existing state of the law as set forth in the Torah when they find that law problematic in some way. A classic example of this is the takana called prosbul. That's a Greek word that means court action, masse beidin. The text begins on line 57. The prosbol, attributed, uh, attributed to the sage Hillel, was a, a legal device that enabled creditors to collect loans owed to them, even though, according to Torah law, those loans should have been canceled by Shemitah, the sabbatical year. Normally, we think of this measure as justified by commercial considerations. After all, lenders would never make credit available if they knew their loans would be written off every seventh year. But the rabbis, in fact, justify the pros bull on ethical grounds. Look at line 57. Hillel saw that the people were unwilling to lend money to one another, and therefore dis disregarded the Torah's instruction in Deuteronomy 15 that warns them not to be stingy about lending to the poor simply because the sabbatical year is coming. Therefore, he issued the Takana that makes it possible for lenders to collect their loans. The upshot, Hillel effectively annuls a law of the Torah because it frustrates the Torah's own purpose, which is to secure social justice. 
Now, a big and, let's face it, obvious question here is, does Hillel have the authority to override a law of the Torah? Or as the Gemara puts it, line 74, Is it possible that if, according to the Torah, the sabbatical year releases debts, Hillel can go ahead and ordain that it should not release debts? Now, Abaye answers yes, because we're talking here about Shvi'it Basman Hazeh, the sabbatical year in our time, which is itself a rabbinic legal institution, because according to Torah law, the release of debts is practiced only when the release of land, that is, the Jubilee year, is also practiced. And that happens only when all 12 tribes live on the land. So today, when we don't have a jubilee, the Torah does not require that lenders release their loans during the seventh year. But, line 89, The rabbis ordained that it, meaning the sabbatical year, Shvi'it, should be in practice in order to keep alive the memory of the sabbatical year as ordained by the Torah. And when Hillel saw that the people then refrained from lending money to one another, he decided to institute the pros bull. So, no problem of authority here. Hillel was simply annulling an earlier rabbinical takana and not a mitzvah of the Torah. Except that now there's a problem with that earlier takana. By reestablishing the sabbatical year when the Torah no longer requires it, the rabbis allow borrowers to hold on to money that they rightfully owe to their lenders. That's called, well, that's called stealing. And you might say their takana annuls the mitzvah, lo tignov, you shall not steal. Do the rabbis have the authority to do that? The Talmud answers yes, and it gives us two separate legal theories to justify the rabbi's legislative power. Abaye, lines 102 and 104, declares that this is a case of shev va'alta'ase, sit and do nothing, take a negative action, or as Rashi explains, lines 108 through 114, just as the rabbis have the power to instruct us to sit and do nothing, that is, not to fulfill the positive mitzvot of shofar and lulav, when Rosh Hashanah, or the first day of Sukkot, coincide uh, with Shabbat, so, in this case, too, they have the power to instruct the borrower not to fulfill the mitzvah to repay the loan. It's different. The rabbis are not telling you to violate a negative commandment. They're simply telling you not to take the positive action to fulfill a positive commandment. Okay, that's one theory. Meanwhile, Rava, beginning in lines 116, locates the rabbi's authority in their power of Hefker Beit Din the power to confiscate property by declaring it ownerless, uh, a kind of halachic eminent domain, if you will. In this Hefker Beidin, the court confiscates the lender's legal title to the loan and then transfers that loan, the title to that money, to the borrower so that the borrower, in fact, no longer owes any money to the lender. Now, earlier we said that the rabbis changed the law through Takana, and Literally, that's not true. After all, here, at least, the rabbis neither repeal nor erase the mitzvah of the sabbatical year. It's still right there in the Torah. Rather, what they do is to take action to render that mitzvah functionally inoperative 
because they perceive that it conflicts with the Torah's fundamental purpose of justice and ethics. But uh, functionally speaking, that's just as good as a repeal. Now, in our next installment, we'll take a deeper look at how the rabbis used Takanah and Gezerah, their legislative power, to solve problems that result in cases where halacha and ethics collide. Till then, this has been the 12-minute shiur number 39 from the Freehoff Institute of Progressive Halacha. Thanks for learning with us. Lehitraot.